understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. Genesis chapters 37 through 41. Um, most of this is kind of the story of Joseph. There's like one chapter in there that kind of goes off on other stuff. But for the most part, it's it's Joseph and, and his <laughs> incredible experiences. <laughs> I mean, man, this guy goes from being in a hole to being second in command in Egypt in a matter of, you know, 15 years or something. Pretty crazy. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting, you know, we talk about this coat that he's given. And I've always wondered, like, why why give him this coat? Why why is the what's the purpose of that? And you know, we talk about it's multicolors and whatever, and there's lots of different ideas about what that actually looked like. But I found this it's from uh Black in four hundred questions and answers about the Old Testament. What do we know about the coat given to Joseph? Some scholars suggest the coat given to Joseph was richly embroidered and had long sleeves, such as the better class wore. This type of coat was called a tunic. The typical tunic was long, extending to the hands and feet. To wear such a coat was a sign of favor. It's not clear what Joseph's tunic looked like because the meaning of the Hebrew word that describes it is uncertain. The suggestion that the coat had many colors comes from the Greek translation of Genesis. In Joseph's case, the coat was a sign that the birthright forfeited by Reuben was given to him. And it's again with this birthright idea, you know, that um, should have been Reuben's, but he transgressed. And so it passed down to the, the next person in line, which was Joseph. And it was this symbol of his right to have that birthright. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Is there something else to this coat thing? No, I, I mean, I can think of robes of the priesthood. I could think of symbolizing uh, authority. Uh, many colors is an interesting thought because it's probably not easy to come by in yep. those days. You know, it probably. I think that what they're trying is, I think he's trying to come across that this was a unique. It wasn't a normal coat, and it symbolized something, right? Yeah. I, I find it interesting that right off the bat, it talks about Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Yeah. Because he was the son, the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Um, and when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his children, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And I don't know why, but I I think <laughs> I think about Lef, ne, Lehi, Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel. 
many times in that story, which is a more modern story compared to this one, yep. and we have more detail, many times Laman and Lemuel are threatened by the fact that Nephi is being more righteous than them or calls them to repentance or says, how can I, your younger brother, instruct you who are my older, who should know better, right? In later on through the Book of Mormon, we 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 see glimpses and read parts where it speaks to Lenin and Lemuel and their descendants feeling like Nephi stole the birthright or, or he wanted to set himself up above them. So it's not something that is unique to just this one family, right? But in this story, what's interesting is that Joseph starts having these dreams. And one of them is about these sheaves of... Um, Wheat? Yeah. It doesn't say wheat, right? Just says sheaves. Sheaves in the field, yeah. Which I'm assuming wheat or hay or something. And his sheep stands up and then theirs stand around him and they bow to him. And I don't know if if Joseph is prideful. He's definitely righteous. He he might have just rubbed his brothers the wrong way by saying, Hey, I had a dream where you you know you guys are gonna serve me. But it might also be the fact that the birthright did go to him and it's something he thinks about. And so he dreams about it and he's trying to explain to their, them that, hey, it's not my crazy father. It's actually revelation. It's actually the way it should be. It's not a mistake because that was one of the things that Laman and Lemuel always complained about. It was their father. They looked at the commandments of God as commandments that came from my father who is out of touch. Right. Doesn't know what's going on. And I'm curious if, like, Reuben – well, actually, Reuben seems to be sensible, actually, through all of this. <laughs> and maybe maybe actually, you know, regrets – you can tell in some aspects of the story that he regrets some of the actions that happened, and, and he seems a little bit more uh, – <laughs> less savage than his other brothers who wanted to kill him. Um, but But – I guess, I don't know. I guess my thought is, it, it seems like this family dynamic, if you take it just in this one story, it can seem a little bit extreme. But if we add a little bit of the, uh, maybe other understanding of other scriptures and how those families interacted with birthright, with perceived right. injustices, you can get a better sense that, hey, this wasn't that far off a field. Yep. You know? And and then we look at our time and, you know, we, we see that in our day. Oh, so-and-so passed away. Oh, and the the executive of the will is such and such. And now all the brothers and sisters are upset because they want, and why did they pick them? You know, it's not that crazy. This, you know? Yeah. And I think really the only Ruben, the only reason Ruben is being kind of more sensible is because he's still the oldest and he will probably be ultimately responsible for whatever happens to Joseph in the eyes of his father. And so while the other brothers are like, let's just kill him. You know, he's like, wait a second, if we kill him, What's going to happen to me? No, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to sell him. We're just going to get him out of here. And so <laughs> it's kind of self-preservation, but it's interesting how later on when they need Joseph, how they kind of are like, oh, snap. We realize we did we did him wrong. You know, we really should not have done that. But in a, in a weird twist, if they hadn't done that, they probably would not have been saved. This is one of those weird realms of <laughs> of the Lord knows the future. Right. People have agency. How much agency do we have? 
when the Lord knows the future, you know? Are these things exclusives or, or opposed to each other? Because the next dream that Joseph has, it shows him that he would, or he explains to them that uh, in verse 9 of Genesis 37, he says, hey, I dreamed another dream, and I told it to my brethren, and I have, and I have dreamed a dream more, and thus the sun and the moon and the 11 stars made obeyance unto me. So this was not the sheaves. These are like the sun and the moon. And so he told it to his father. The father rebuked him, and it says, what has thou dreamed? You think that we, your mother and I, and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? And if we know the full story, we know that, yes, that's exactly what it means. Joseph's going to go to Egypt, rise to the top, and be the way of saving his own family and his people and other families and lots of people. You know, He's going to be a, a means of preparing not only just mercy to Israel and their family and their descendants, but mercy also to the Egyptians, to everyone else who's affected by this, right? I, mean, I know I'm kind of jumping the gun, but it's like in this one dream, you know, it just seems like now this one took it so far that even the father was like, hey, you're thinking pretty high and mighty of yourself. And I can only consider that Joseph's probably thinking, these are just what I'm dreaming. I just, you know, and, but I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of similar to when Nephi broke his bow in and his dad complained about it even. But he comes back to him and says, hey, where should I go? And then the dad says, oh, we'll go that way and finds food. And... It's interesting because if you look at this as kind of like the as a symbol of the Savior, who's basically going and telling people during his life, I, I am here to save you. I'm here to do this. I'm here to do the, the will of the Lord. I'm teaching you the gospel so that I am the bread of life. And how the Pharisees were like, what? How dare you say all of this? You know, and he's like, uh, how dare I? Because this is the truth. And even Joseph is kind of like, he's not doing it in an arrogant way, I don't think. He's doing it in a way that's like, I have these dreams and check out th what this means. And, you know, like, I guess I'm going to be a leader. And people are like, what the heck, man? You know, <laughs> who are you, little brother? But then in, in verse 13 of, of chapter 37, and Israel said unto Joseph, do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, here am I. And those those three words are pretty important because it's what we hear prophets saying throughout the scriptures, and it's what we've heard the Savior say when he said, whom shall I send? Here am I. Send me. Right? And it's this kind of parallel throughout this whole story of how Joseph is carrying out the role of Savior lowering himself to the very very bottom being a prisoner being a servant right very very bottom to be exalted up to the very very top in order to save his family it's a there's some mirroring happening here in this story to help us understand better the the atonement and the sacrifice of the savior that comes many many years later it's funny because you also see that they sold them for 20 pieces of silver yeah which is kind of, I think, the same amount that Judas. Well, they sold them for 30 pieces of silver, but it says, uh, I found something about that, actually. That basically a slave that was 5 to 20 years old would sell for 20 pieces of silver, and over 20 would sell for 30 pieces of silver. So, yeah, the, the parallel there is the same, too. You know, the the trader or the, the, in, the, the transaction um, of selling that savior character of Joseph or of Christ was sold for the going price of a slave. So I think they, they 
they, they throw them in a pit and want to leave them there for wild beasts. Then they see some some traders coming by, some Ishmaelites, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, well, let's just sell him. <laughs> and then Reuben kind of comes like at a weird time, and it's like, where is he? Because like it sounds like Reuben was gonna try to rescue him and say, okay, go run back home. You know, we're just kidding. You know, don't tell dad, right? Um, <laughs> but then he finds out, oh, they sold him, and then. They killed a goat, they put it on his coat, they took it back to the father, and then the father's super sad, right? Like any father would be, right? So there's a lot of deception going on here, (laughs) aside from the fact that, hey, we don't like our brother. And then if you tie it to the Savior, like you're doing, you know, if, if Joseph represents that, the people that he came to bless and should be ready for him, were actually the the ones that caused him the greatest harm and to be killed. Now, just like the atonement, just like we know, Christ had to die and go through the atonement. But it was still people's agency. And and even the Romans like were like, hey, I find no or you know the Roman guy was like Pilate, yeah. Pilate, yeah, I find no fault with him. What do you want? Oh well Kill him anyway, crucify him, right? And it's it's interesting because th- there were many places here where they could have turned away. They could have said, hey, all right, you were going to pay a couple hours. Come on out, you know, or let's just take your cloak with burn it and then go back home, you know. <laughs> but it escalated to the point where it's like, we don't want to take fault for this. We don't want to do it. We will have somebody else do it for us. Kind of like the Jews didn't want to deal with jesus they wanted the romans to deal with him right there's a lot of not only that but essentially to israel he thought joseph was dead and then later when they go to egypt and they find him there that's like the first time he realizes that he's not dead and there's kind of a resurrection of types right where he's like oh my gosh you're still alive and that joy that he felt that finding his son still alive you know it's kind of the same parallel of Everyone thinking the Savior's been crucified. Now what are we going to do? And then him appearing to them later saying, hey, this is part of the plan. You know, I've been resurrected and now I'm going to go up to my father and you need to continue on doing the things here. But yeah, there's there's like all these opportunities where we can kind of see that parallel keep coming back. In our lives, I, I think of it. So many times we talk about if we follow the commandments, we'll avoid problems. And that's true because when we're disobedient obviously we'll experience more problems but i don't think that being obedient ever absolves you from having trials and that's very evident here in this story because joseph isn't really doing anything wrong but yet all these horrible things keep happening to him and you could look at that and say wow every time i try to do what's right i get punished and my life gets worse and it's really easy to fall into that idea that this is all this is all a sham right i'm being asked to trust in the lord and every time i trust in the lord my brothers throw me in a pit they sell me off to somebody that dude makes me a a slave i kind of work my way up and then i have this issue with his wife and they they throw me in jail like every time i'm trying to do the right thing i get punished or something bad happens to me And how many times in our lives do we sometimes feel that way? You know, Lord, I'm doing the right things. I'm trying my best, but bad things continue to happen. Like, what is going on? And I think the lesson we learned from this is you don't know what is coming. You don't know what you're being prepared for. 
these trials aren't always the result of bad decisions. Sometimes it's a refiner's fire. Sometimes it's a way to say, you know what, you got to go through some of this nasty stuff to number one, be able to appreciate what's coming. And number two, be able to have the faith building experience of coming back out of it and seeing the Lord's mercy in your life. And I, I just see that so many times throughout the story where I'm like, he did the right thing and yet it did not work. <laughs> and how how easily he could have said, you know what, to heck with all this. I'm just going to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter anyway. Along those lines, there's a scripture I really enjoy in the Book of Mormon in Alma chapter 7. And it's talking about the Savior. And it says, um, he shall go forth suffering pains and affliction and temptations of every kind. That this, that the word might be fulfilled, that saith he will take upon him the pains and the sickness of his people. That he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death, which binds his people. That he may take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh. That he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. So along the same lines that you were talking about, how sometimes bad things happen to good people. That's the way we see it. But the Savior... The scriptures tell us that the Savior went and took these things upon himself so he could better understand us, so he could succor us, so he could his so his bowels may be full of mercy. Um infirmities, you know, all, all of these things. So I, I know we mentioned this before, but I come back to the fact that when we covenant to follow Christ, we are we should be prepared to have Christ-like experiences. And some of those are experiences that what Joseph's going through. Hey, Joseph, go do what's right. Okay, you get thrown in a pit. Joseph, continue to do what's right. You get sold into slavery. Hey, Joseph, you continue to do what's right. I just gained a little success in Potiphar's household, and that gets taken from you. Joseph, go continue to do what's right. I translated the dream of the baker, uh, and I told him, don't forget about me. When these things come true, don't forget, and they, they forgot about you. <laughs> and you spend who knows how much, how, how long, right? But but it all works out in the end. And just like the Savior without the atonement would not be the Savior. So to us, without our trials, we won't be us. We won't be what we need to be. And it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to try to always separate things into this happened because someone else's bad agency, this happened because of my bad agency, this happened because the Lord meant it to be, or this happened because randomly. And sometimes when atrocious things happen to us, we we try to think, oh, well, did the Lord mean that to happen? Is this like, should I be happy about this trial? You know, no, sometimes there, there are terrible things that happen to people that the Lord doesn't want you to go through, but allows agency to occur and and in the end those who wait upon the lord will not be forgotten you know will not be disappointed um and that's that is easier said than done but that's why we have a life to work on it so let's talk about this situation with potiphar's wife because after he gets sold to the ishmaelites they go and they sell him in egypt to potiphar who's like captain of the pharaoh's guard right He's like in charge of all of them. And he quickly gains favor with Potiphar and becomes like head of his household, kind of running the household. It says he, of Joseph, it says he was a prosperous man 
and the Lord was with Joseph, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Yeah. But Joseph has some skills. He has some work ethics. He wasn't just da 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 da. da the Lord will do it. No, yeah. He was getting after it. He was doing whatever work. I, I think in this scenario, I think of Ammon. When Ammon yeah. decides to go be the servant to King Lamoni, and he's like, "Where's Ammon? He's over there watering your horses. He's over there. He already pruned the sheep and took out these arms. He, he you know, he's already working." And I, I like that because it seems like to be right with the Lord means that you are a proactive, prosperous person. Right. It's more than just not doing bad things. It's also, you know, being anxiously engaged in a good cause. Like there's a reason why we're told to do that. And that he's clearly exemplifying that. And when it says that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him, I think that even someone who's maybe not in in the same faith is able to look at him and say, huh. This guy's really on top of things, and there's something different about him. Of course, Potiphar's wife also thought he was pretty great uh, for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted a little bit more than just a good guy around. Um, she she basically wants to seduce him into breaking the law of chastity. And um, it's interesting how we, we always use this as kind of a an example of how to avoid temptation because he basically gets the heck out of dodge it's kind of happening it's lingering around he's in the presence of it i don't think she just went one day out of nowhere and was like hey lie with me i think it was kind of making comments and you know trying to find herself in situations where the two of them were alone whatever i think it was building up to this and then she was finally like hey lie with me and he was like okay you know what no I'm out of here. In in verse 12 of chapter 39, and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. That that to me is like, okay, there's there's a few things in in a temptation. There are a few things that you yourself are responsible for. Number one, recognizing that you're in a situation that is not desirable, recognizing that you're in a tempting situation. And I think maybe he kind of lived in it for a little while because he had to. He kind of was like, I'm head of the household. I can't just leave the household. Like, this is my job. But when it got to a point where it was going from just being your environment to being something that would directly involve you, uh, he didn't hesitate to basically be like, no, I'm out of here. This story is really interesting to read the Josephus account of it. Because (laughs) in there, it, it actually speaks to many occasions when the wife would seek opportunity to be alone with him. And he started recognizing these and avoiding her, which caused her to be upset. Right. You know, up to the point where, okay, now that you don't want, then I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to fall, life, I mean, I'm going to fall asleep. I I think it's really interesting in verse 9, where he says, well, we can start in verse 8, where he says, um, where she says, lie with me, verse, verse 7, and he says, but he refused and said unto his master, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. He hath committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And the reason I like these verses is there's a sense of Joseph having gratitude. Yeah. He's had some terrible situations. He's not saying, okay, now my dreams are coming true. This all belongs to me. I'm rising to the top. 
uh, he's kind of saying, look at everything he's done for me and the trust he has in me. There's nothing he keeps from me. You know, there, there's almost like a friendship, yep. like a trust. And then he says, how can I do this? And how can I sin against God? You know, um, which there are many people in this situation who would look at this differently. You would say, hey, I'm the greatest person in the house. He's not here. I can go do what I want. We can surely get away with this. You know, you, you know, you can spin it, whatever. But I, I don't know. There's something here where I just see gratitude. And I'm like, I think gratitude helps him understand that he's grateful for what he has. So he's respectful. And he's grateful to the Lord. So he'll respect and keep his commandments. Um, right. I think he's he's very good at attributing his status and attributing his success to the Lord, not to himself and not even necessarily to Potiphar, because he's saying uh, he hasn't kept anything from me but thee. You know, I have all this power and influence in this house. Now, why would I do this to sin against God who has given me all of this? Right. Because as soon as I do that, I'm going to lose everything. It would have been very easy, especially in those times when kind of this treachery was done to kind of maybe arrange something with her to poison Potiphar or whatever. And then, oh, well, now that he's dead, oh, my gosh, what a tragedy. Now I can take control of the house and the guard and his wife. Right. But he's looking at it saying the only reason I have any of this is because the Lord's been with me. So why would I sacrifice that? For what? And honestly, um, it did not play out well for him, right? <laughs> this is the part where you're like, oh, this is, he did the right thing, so he should get a merit badge for it. Yeah, you know what? He got thrown in jail because of this. It, it's funny that in jail, like in verse 22, well, 21 and 22, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and yep. showed him mercy. It's funny that in both instances, it talks about the Lord shows him mercy. As if Joseph's done something wrong. <laughs> but this mercy might mean something different than you did something wrong, so I'll give you mercy. It might be shows him favor or, or shows continues to enlighten him or continues to help him stay motivated or, you know, it continues to let him know he's not forgotten. Because Joseph goes at it again. He says the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever he did, you know, it's like he he knew that Joseph could be counted upon. And and it's like when you're surrounded by someone you can trust, you give them more responsibility, you know. And, yeah, you're a prisoner. But while you're here, hey, be in charge of all the prisoners. Why don't you and do this? It's again, it shows that Joseph had uh, social skills. He had intellectual skills. You know, he. He wasn't a dead potato, you know what I mean? He 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 was useful. He was proactive. He was he wasn't wallowing in self pity. He also didn't blame God. He didn't say, "Wait a second, I avoided committing sin when I was in a position where I could have taken advantage of the of everything. I I did the right thing, and now I'm in prison. God, this doesn't work. This isn't fair. Life's not fair to me." You know, he could have become a victim pretty quickly there and said, I, I'm i not doing this anymore. I'm going to do whatever I want because nothing matters. You know, but he continues to show that I trust in the Lord that this is all going to work out. 
And it's funny how it wasn't immediate. You know, it just took a long time to work his way back up. Yeah, he was put in charge of the prisoners. But then we talk about how he, he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker. They had he interpreted their dreams. Um, they go out of prison. They they forget him. And then it's probably still a good while before he's called up to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And it's more kind of like, oh, yeah, there's this guy down there that's interpreting dreams, you know. Well, bring him because my magicians suck, you know. <laughs> Something interesting that Joseph says also to the butler and the baker, because um, they both have dreams. One of them, he's saying, well, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh will take you back and forgive you and you'll be able to you know, drink at the cup of your hand or something like that. And, and the other one's kind of like, it means Pharaoh's going to hang you up and the birds are going to eat your flesh. <laughs> which is not great. But on verse 8, he says, And Joseph said unto them, Do not the interpretations belong to God? Tell me then, I pray you. It's interesting because I think Joseph understands that this power to interpret dreams is not his. Right. You know, you know, and, and that God is helping him, which is the same mechanism by which he'll rise to the top. You know. And then we get to, to Pharaoh's dream. It's interesting because in the in the dream they talk about corn, and it's funny because people use um, examples of stuff that didn't supposedly exist in Book of Mormon times in the Americas to discredit the Book of Mormon. You know, it mentions horses. Well, they didn't have horses in the Americas during that time, so clearly the Book of Mormon isn't true. Um, they did not have corn. Corn is an American crop. It is from the Americas. So when it talks about corn, what it really means is wheat and barley grain like that um, and when it was translated especially in the king james version many 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 years later that was the word that they chose to use but it's it's one of those things where it's like if we're going to be critical of the words and the items chosen to translate things in the book of mormon shouldn't we do the same with the bible or can we understand that at the time this was the best word to describe what was being used just to, as a side i just found that interesting that you know, they talk about corn, and I'm like, they didn't know about corn back then. Corn didn't exist in their land. And it's like a main feature in this dream. Well, really what it is is wheat and barley. It's a grain. It doesn't really matter what kind of grain it is. It's a symbol of plenty or, or famine. A couple of interesting things that I found here as well. Uh, before he goes to meet the pharaoh, he shaves his head and changes his clothes. And... What, I found this quote by Hamilton in the book of, uh, called Book of Genesis 18 through 50. Um, he says, Understandably, Pharaoh takes immediate action. Joseph is to be brought before Pharaoh as quickly as possible. In preparation for his first royal audience, Joseph shaves and doffs his pr prison garb. He does this, of course, to make himself more presentable to the head of state. We know that Semites prefer to be bearded, whereas Egyptians were clean-shaven. Joseph will look more like an Egyptian than a Hebrew, even if he is a Hebrew lad. And I was thinking, like, why why bother with that? And I think the, the reason is he's adapting to the culture that he's in. And he's saying, if I'm going to be getting my message across, I need to adapt my presentation to the culture that I'm in. And I think about missionaries and how we want to say, well, this is how we do it. Um, when, we, when we teach the gospel, this is how we teach it, and this is how we approach these topics. Sometimes it's necessary to adjust our message or our presentation of our message to our audience, right? If he'd have gone in there and said, 
I'm just going to wear what I'm wearing, looking how I'm looking, it probably would have worked out too. But he tried to do his best to change that in order to be accepted by the pharaoh. Yeah, I wonder how much, well, I'm sure that was inspiration, you know, that he received. Because if the Lord is looking, you know, three, four chess moves ahead, <laughs> he knows he's positioning Joseph to be second in command of all of Egypt. And will that be more acceptable if he looks like them or doesn't look like them? There's the, in the New Testament where he says, you know, hey, clean the inner vessel before you clean the outer vessel. This is like the opposite scenario. His inner vessel is clean. Right. He needed to clean his outer vessel. Yep. Where oftentimes we are so focused on just the appearance and those slavers say, why do you worry about the appearance when the heart is what I care about? But when the heart is right, you should also have good appearance. You know, you should also be clean. You should, you know, do these things, right? Um, so also just before, so Joseph has this, the Pharaoh has this dream about, you know, seven years in uh, seven ranks, the number seven, you know, with cattle stocks, um, seven thin ears and so forth. And the magicians, <laughs> which I would take would be like their, 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 their historians or their prophets or their teachers or their uh, magicians, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and, their, and all their wise men thereof, they could not interpret the dream. You know? And yeah. it's interesting because they were two dreams, and I think they were trying to interpret them separate. And what Joseph, when he interpreted the dreams, he said, no, these are all meaning the same thing. These are all one dream. Um, which I think it's interesting that maybe because now when we when when Joseph tells us in the scriptures the meaning, it's like kind of obvious. I can see that. I can see <laughs> that. But if you think of them two separate dreams, I, I'm curious if the Lord split them up into two things. So they would be, they would be even more confusing, you know, like like more reason why you need someone like Joseph. It's um, there's a quote from Keel and DeLich in commentary. They say, the magicians were men of the priestly caste who occupied themselves with the sacred arts and sciences of the Egyptians, the hieroglyphic writings, astrology, and interpretation of dreams, the foretelling of events, magic, and conjuring, and who were regarded as the possessors of secret arts. But not one of these could interpret it, although the clue to interpretation was to be found in the religious symbols of Egypt. That's the other thing, is that Joseph isn't coming with any knowledge necessarily that others didn't have. He's using their own symbols. And so it's not like he's saying, oh, I have this this insight that no one else has. He just has a clarity provided by revelation that no one else had. And he's using their symbols from their dream to show them this is what I understand from this. And this is what this means. And that's why the Pharaoh, I think, was like, holy smokes, this guy knows what he's doing. I think it's really also interesting that Pharaoh was the one that had the dream. Yeah. And he's the leader of all these people. So the Lord is also speaking to him to say, hey, you should prepare the land, the people, you know. Um, now he needed a little help, and it sure helped Joseph. But it's very similar to um, other examples where we talk about these events, but it was Sarah who had this question, you know. And yeah. it was this, and it was – so the Lord is no respecters of people, you know. He, he'll speak to whomever will listen. Well, and how many times do we ourselves receive – some sort of guidance revelation, but we don't really know what it means. 
or we're not really sure like why am I having this impression or why am I having this uh, experience in my life and then you know we either read something or we read the scriptures or we watch general conference and it's almost like the prophet is speaking to us it's almost like we're receiving revelation through him for us and that's the same thing that's happening to these people they're in communication with with god even the pharaoh who wasn't a hebrew he didn't believe in the same god he was having a communication with God to lead his people, what he needed was someone to say, here's what it means. And sometimes we need that too. Sometimes it's like, I get the feeling that we need a change in our life, or I get the feeling that I need to, I, I just need a more clarity on certain things. And then you watch general conference and it's like, this talk just is like speaking directly to you. That's what this is. You know, that's the, a prophet, seer and revelator receiving revelation and just for a broad group of people, but you feel like, holy cow, that's exactly what I needed. Well, I think the, the last main principle in this story is he he not only interprets the dream, but then he's empowered to act on it. And what they do is they prepare for the famine and they they put some stores away um, so that when the famine comes, they're not left without. And they even have so much that they're able to sell to other countries and other people that come in looking for food because the famine is so widespread. And I think that what that's teaching us is if you get the revelation, act on it and prepare yourself for when times are hard. Mm -hmm. uh, we've always been told to have food storage, to have some savings, to have, you know, there's varying levels of advice as to how much, but I think the point is have something, have something stored. Because, you know, if things get difficult and they will at some point, whether it's on your know, personal level, a national level, a global level, um, you'll have something to fall back on and maybe even help others out. One of the most inspiring stories I've seen out of this Ukraine crisis is a member of the church that had a huge amount of food storage. And when his city was basically locked down, he started giving his food away. And some of the approaches that I've heard from people are, you know, I got to have a big food storage and I got to have a lot of guns to protect it so that if things go sideways, no one can steal my food. And I was like, wow, that's a very strange way to look at it. When this brother is in a war and he's readily giving his food to his neighbors to help sustain them through this trial. Heaven forbid that happen, but you know, you want to be prepared for whatever may come your way. The other part I thought about this was also um, like emotional bounty. Mm. Sometimes things are going great. We should appreciate it. We should remember it. And oftentimes we're told to write it down or to, to record it somehow. Because sometimes our testimony written down or these spiritual experiences we have, when the night is dark and they're not around, just their memories can keep us going. You know, the, the you know, and and our lives aren't because we are righteous, aren't there's bounty from now till the end of the horizon, right? No, it's, I think this is also an example of saying sometimes there's times of bounty and things are going great. Sometimes they're not going great. Joseph is an example that if you do what's right, it will work out. It'll work out even if it doesn't at first or at second or at third, right? It, yeah. if, you, if you stay with it and you continue to be faithful, you will be blessed in the end. Well, it's, it's like, isn't that true of anything that you want to learn? Like, hey, you want to learn how to do math or program a code or how many times do you have to fail at it? 
and it is it it's like all the time yep. all the time to get better and people that are really good at something it's like hey this concert pianist how many times you hit the wrong note how many times was your finger sore how many times you know it's like there it's it's a process for everybody for everything we do it's it's and, and so is the gospel the gospel is that's why weekly we have these check-ins where it's like okay how do we recommit ourselves how do we look at what we did good and 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 appreciate that and, and how do we look at what we didn't do right and fix it become an engaged learner Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.